Before we jump into the passage and the sermon this morning, we, what we do before, before the reading is we, we talk to our young ones, we talk to the kids uh, to let you know what this passage is going to be about and then what the sermon is going to be about, okay? So uh, kids, if I can have your attention, I'm going to tell you a true story today. It's a true story. In 1980, the state of Arkansas almost exploded. Okay, so uh, there was this guy, Jeff Clem, and he worked for the Army. He was 19 years old, 19, okay? And his job at the Army was to take care of missiles, huge, huge rockets, huge bombs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Paul's excited. Uh, okay, and, uh, and his boss was this 20-year-old guy named David Powell. And uh, one day they show up for work, and they're working on the Titan II missile, which has the biggest bomb in the world on it. And, and they, you know, so they go to the top of the rocket, which is like eight floors up, and they're working on it. And they're working on, like, the fuel. They're trying to put some fuel in it and stuff. And one of them, eight, you know, they're eight stories up uh, in this huge silo. One of them accidentally drops a wrench. They drop this big, heavy tool, and it falls and falls, and they're watching it, and they're watching it, and it falls and falls, and it hits the ground, and it boomerangs back into the rocket, and it punctures. It knocks a big hole in the rocket, and so then all of a sudden, all this stuff starts spewing out of the rocket. It's fuel. It's rocket fuel, which is toxic and extremely explosive, unstable, and it's going everywhere. It starts flooding the building, and, and, and they, they freak out, and, and they, they, because they look up, and the biggest warhead nuclear bomb in the world is right above them as the rocket is leaking fuel, and so they, they run down. They get into the command center, and every, uh, sirens are going off, and everyone is freaking out at their computers like, what's happening? What's happening? And they look at these two guys like, y'all, what, what happened? Is it, what went wrong? And they're like, we don't know. And everyone is still freaking out. Moments later, the big, big boss, the, the general that's in charge, comes in. He's like this big, huge, imposing man, and he looks at the two of them. He looks at Clem, and he looks at Powell, and he says, what happened? And Powell, this 20-year-old, he just starts crying, and he tells him the truth, and the general's face goes completely white. And he says, everybody, out, run, run, evacuate, and they all evacuate, and they all get out just in time before the whole bunker explodes. And they're looking around, and they're still alive, which means the warhead, the nuclear bomb, did not go off. Somehow, miraculously, they found it a quarter of a mile away in a ditch. It did not go off. If it would have de detonated, it had killed everybody in Arkansas and Illinois in Missouri, in Indiana, in Kentucky, and then you would have massive fallout across the country. 30 minutes into their lie, they realize uh, everyone is definitely going to die if we don't tell the truth. Telling the truth about the gospel is like that. <laughs> it's, tr it's true. Telling the truth about the gospel is like that because the truth of the gospel is the only thing that can save anyone from dying forever. But let me ask kids, here's the question to you. Is the truth of the gospel about you? 
it is not like, like, is the truth of the gospel like this thing where if people will just listen to you about like what's right and what's wrong and, how, and what they should do and how they should live, will they be saved? No. What the truth of the gospel is about who? Yes, God and his son. The truth of the gospel is about Jesus. Uh, and here's the thing is, like, we struggle with telling the truth. We, can't, we cannot save people. We also need to be saved by the truth. And it's all about Jesus. The truth is, is that we, what we need and what everyone else needs is it, it, they need to know we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. Uh, there's nothing that we can do, uh, have done, anything we can do to save ourselves. We need the one who actually lived for us and who died for us in order to beat our sin, in order to beat our death for us to save us. We, we need the truth. Y'all, we are in desperate need. We here and everyone else out there, we desperately need the truth of Jesus to be saved. Our family needs it. Our friends need it. Even our enemies need that truth of the gospel. That's what we're going to be talking about today. What Jesus has done for us. Uh, we're spending, everybody, we're spending our Advent season in Isaiah chapter 9. The whole Advent season in Isaiah 9. Uh, on this Old Testament prophecy that is about the first Advent. This prophecy in the Old Testament is talking about the first arrival of Jesus Christ. And it describes it as the arrival, the coming of a great light. Jesus is that great light. And we want to ask, okay, well, what does that mean that our Savior is light? And what does it mean for us as we wait here and we look ahead to Jesus' second advent, his, his coming again, because he is coming again, finally and forever. Now, let me just, this is a, this is a qualifier, because this morning is about uh, the truth of the light. That's, that's the title that's in there, it's a spoiler. It's about the truth of the light, and as, as a pastor, it's, it's, just, it's always my job to speak and teach biblical truth and only biblical tr truth. And in one sense, uh, that can be easy just because that's the job. And, and you, like, I know y'all can sit there and say, God, it's so easy for him to say this stuff. He's a pastor. He has to say it. Okay, but then I have to go home and like say this. Uh, yeah, that, that is true. That's true. Uh, and in another sense, it can also come across as like holier than thou. I'm up here and I'm looking down on all of you. Uh, the, the positive spin on that would be, listen, every sermon is supposed to evoke that voice in your head, like, oh, he's talking to me, and that's hard, and that's convicting. Today is no different. But no different also in the sense that, I promise you, I, I'm first talking to myself. I always am. And, and anything really good you hear today, uh, uh, the biblical insights, anything good, uh, the, it's, I've needed this, uh, so desperately, uh, this, uh, like I thank Meredith Klein and I, I thank uh, Carl Truman and Gordon Hugenberger and Brian Habig and Tim Keller. Uh, it's all their good stuff. So together, uh, let's get into the word. Uh, please stand for the reading of scripture this morning. Isaiah, we're going to start in the very, 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 very first verse of Isaiah, and then we'll, we'll skip to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 1.1. 1, 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, if you will, go with me in your mind back 2,700 years ago uh, to ancient Israel. Here's Isaiah the prophet, and he, he comes prophesying about a great light because Israel is in a really dark place. And at this point, Israel has, it's split into two kingdoms. When Isaiah shows up here prophesying this thing, Isaiah, uh, sorry, uh, Israel has already split into two kingdoms. There's Israel, some, sometimes called Ephraim, up in the north, and then there's the kingdom of Judah in the south. And the northern kingdom of Israel and its neighbor, the pagan kingdom of Syria, they want the southern kingdom of Judah. They want, they want Judah to join in an alliance and go to war against the great empire of Assyria. The king of Judah says, like, no way, not doing it. So Israel and Syria scheme to assassinate the king of Judah and, and all of the royal family, and they're going to take over the kingdom. So here comes Isaiah. Like, that's the context. Isaiah comes in in, in the midst of all this darkness, and that, that's, just, that's just the outside stuff. Like, Israel itself is in terrible, Judah itself is in terrible, terrible shape. Isaiah comes in all this darkness with a prophecy about light. And that light is a child, he says. It's a child, uh, this, this is a child in the line of Ahaz, which means Ahaz is going to live, and his household is going to live. Like the plans of Israel and Syria, they will fail. And last Sunday, we, we talked about, okay, why the light is a child, and how the child is a light. Uh, and this morning, Isaiah 9 also says that this light child will also be a wonderful counselor. In the darkness, you need the light of this wonderful counselor. And so we want to ask a similar question this morning, of like, why is the great light a wonderful counselor? I, let's just say that I have a counselor. I have a therapist because I'm a little nuts. It's, like, it's great. Uh, but Isaiah 9... Isaiah 9 is talking about the kind of counselor that they had in the ancient Near East. So it's not, not the same thing. The, 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 what Isaiah is talking about is a counselor to the rulers, to the kings. And uh, this is a person with the gift of discernment who becomes pivotal in times of warfare and crisis. So here's a, what's a counselor? Here's an, a, a historical illustration. The first king of Israel was David. You know, David and Goliath, that David. David was the greatest of the kings in Israel, and he was a terrible dad. Uh, one of David's sons, Absalom, rebels against his dad, and he successfully carries out a coup. 
and he ousts his dad as the king. And Absalom assumes the throne, and David runs. David flees Jerusalem. He flees out into the wilderness with a group of loyal followers as Absalom takes over the kingdom. Now, part of Absalom's plan to consolidate power is to recruit David's counselor to be his own, this guy Ahithophel. Uh, so, so David knows that, okay, Ahithophel has turned against me, so David recruits another counselor, Hushai, the archite, to be his new counselor. And, and the plan is that David says, okay, Hushai, you're going to stay in Jerusalem. You're going to stay in Jerusalem as a mole, and you're going to infiltrate the council of Absalom. So very soon, Absalom gets his council together for a consultation, and he says, okay, my dad is on the run. What next? What do we do next? And Ahithophel, who's turned on David, says, here is my counsel. Give me 12,000 men. We will hunt your father down while he's tired and weak, and we'll kill him. And, and we'll, we'll only him, we're, we're only going to get him, we'll bring everyone else back. We'll bring everyone else back, and we'll end this thing, and your throne will be secure. And Absalom hears it, he's like, mm, yeah, okay, nice, nice. Hushai. You concur with that? And Hushai, who's David's mole, he says, hmm, you know what? This one, this, I'm sorry, this one time Ahithophel's counsel is not good. Think about it. Your dad is the greatest warrior that we have. And he's taken his mighty men with him. And your dad is an expert in warfare and the wilderness. He knows it better than anybody. You send out 12,000 men, you're going to suffer defeat. And he'll escape. And then you'll be the laughing stock of the kingdom and it'll be over for you. So instead, instead, let's take our time and let's get all the warriors in the kingdom. Let's get everybody. And together we'll amass this huge army. And you, Absalom, you'll lead us out into the desert and we'll hunt them all down and wipe them all out. And Absalom goes with Hushai's counsel. He says, yes, great, awesome. So Ahithophel, that same day, he goes home and he hangs himself because he knows it's all over. He knows it's all over for him and Absalom. And it was, he was right. Okay, that's, that's just an illustration. That's the power of a counselor, of seeing what others cannot see. And when the people of Isaiah's day, when they hear of like a counselor who can see what you can't see, and then he's called a wonderful counselor. They're not hearing, y'all, I'm telling you, like this is a really, really, really good counselor. What they're hearing, when they hear wonderful counselor, they're hearing things like Psalm 77, 78, 88, 89, 119. They're hearing all these psalms that they have sung a million times that say things like, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. Wonders like the Exodus. Wonders like overcoming Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. All that stuff is called wonders, the wonders of God. God leading his people through the wilderness like a blazing, fiery cloud of light. Isaiah is saying the light that is coming this miraculous child is not going to be a super-duper counselor. It's going, he'll be a counselor who is God himself. And his counsel will be that of God himself. So why is the light a wonderful counselor? 
Because, of, because in times of crisis, when you are in the dark, what you need is someone who can see what you cannot see, who can see the truth and make it known to you, who is for you and can make the truth known to you. Not twist it, but who can shine light in the darkness. Right before this prophecy, that, that's in Isaiah 9. So right before this, at the very end of chapter 8, Isaiah explains why we need the light of God himself. He says in, in chapter 8, verses 19 to 20, it says that in the darkness, like in, in this darkness, the king, Ahaz, and the people are consulting mediums and magicians. Like they know they're in trouble. They know they're in the darkness. And then chapter 8 ends like this. It says, distressed and hungry, they will roam the land. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. So one commentator has said here, like, in the dark, what Isaiah 8 is saying, like, in the dark, they, th they think, let's look toward the earth. Like, let's look to ourselves. Let's look to human resources to fix the world. So they're looking to their experts. They're looking to their mystics and, and their scholars and their magicians for solutions. So they're saying, like, yeah, we get it. Yes, we know, we're, like, we're in darkness, and we can overcome this, y'all. We can overcome it ourselves. And, this, and we're still in that darkness today. Uh, the same stuff of like the world makes the same claim today. So today, some of the forms that it takes of we're in the darkness, how are we going to get out of this? Some look more to the state. Let's look to the government for light in the darkness. Others will look more to the market. Let's look to the market. Let's look to the economy for light in the darkness. And then all of us look to technology for light in the darkness. And everybody shares the same assumption. Things are dark, but we believe that we can end the darkness with intellect and innovation. And that assumption is based on the deeper assumption that we can overcome the darkness because we have the light in us. And so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world so we can overcome poverty and injustice and hatred and violence and evil if we work together. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and of peace. Uh, but that, that belief that we can save ourselves, that some political system or ideology can fix human problems, it is only, you look to the, it's only led to more darkness. Which is why there are yet others in the world who are watching all of this and they say, yeah, nobody has the light. No, nobody has the light. You're all equally wrong. At, at, at best, this is all equally incomplete. And I think, I think a good illustration of this is this famous Indian parable. There's this Indian parable about blind men and an elephant. And so there are a bunch of blind men who are trying to figure out, they, they've come to an elephant, and they're trying to figure out what the elephant is like. And so, so the blind men, uh, each of them takes, each of them takes a part of the elephant, and they mistake their part for the whole thing. So the blind man who feels the trunk, he says, uh, well, I think the elephant is it's long, and it's flexible, and, and it's, it's like a snake. And then the blind man who has the leg, he feels the leg. He says, no, 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 The elephant, this, this thing is sturdy, and, and it's like a pillar, and it's, it's short, and it's, and it's stumpy and thick. 
But the blind man who has the ear, he says, no, 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 no. The elephant is, is very broad and it's, and it's very, very thin. And then the one feeling the tail says, no, y'all, no, it's, it's like a piece of rope. And then the one with the body says, nope, it is a wall uh, and immovable. And the one with the tusk says, no, you're all wrong. It's sharp and it's smooth like a spear. And this, this is what human innovations and religions, this is, what, this is what people say. People will look and say, no one has the light because this is what human innovations and religions and philosophies are like. They're like blind men trying to figure out what the truth looks like, but everyone's in the dark. You know, we're all blind, and we can only ever have part of the, of the truth. And you all need to get, you all need to understand that you're mistaking your truth for the whole thing. That's really popular today. It's essentially an indifference toward truth so that people who want to be indifferent can say, sure, I'm a spiritual person. I pick and I choose what I like from different religions because each one has something to offer me. But no one's got it all right. And then along comes a missionary to India who heard all of this. He heard it over and over and over and over again. He heard this Indian parable forever, and then it hit him. And he says, no, wait a second. The only person who could know that every blind man was holding only part of the elephant would be somebody who isn't blind and can see the whole elephant. And he said, <clears throat> the parable is an arrogant claim to have the kind of knowledge which it insists is impossible. To any person who claims that no one has all the truth, we have to ask, what is the superior vantage ground from which you can make that claim? How do you have the light of sight to know that everyone else is in the dark and only have part of the truth? You said no one else has it. You said, no one had, you, said, you must somehow know the whole truth. Aren't you just claiming the same knowledge that you just said no one else has? And here it is again. This assumption that no one can see the light is based on the ironic, deeper assumption that that person of indifference has the light within themselves. They can see it. The Bible never, the Bible never counsels indifference. To, to the forces of darkness. It only ever counsels resistance to the darkness. But it also, this is, this is one commentary says, uh, but it supports no illusions that we can defeat the darkness ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimist thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future and then the end. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad. Yes, things are really this bad and we cannot heal or save ourselves. Things are really this dark, but there is hope. And the hope is Isaiah's prophecy that, the prophecy, quote Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. That word, that word shone is the word for the breaking of dawn. So you, you could translate it this way. I think this is the NIV. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is why the wonderful counselor is the great light. The prophecy is not saying, Isaiah is not saying, that from the world a light has sprung. Like this, this light has come from the world. No. 
It says light has dawned upon the world. The light has come from outside. There is light outside of this world. And it's, it's not just that Jesus has brought that light to save us. Yes, he has. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's, that's who this prophecy is telling us about. His advent, his coming, this wonderful counselor of light that will shine the truth about God and about the, the truth about ourselves and the truth about each other. And he shines that light of truth on us. So we do, yes, we need, to, we, need to, we need to stand on this. Christianity is about absolute truth. Yes. But it is so tempting and it is so easy to make Christianity about absolute knowing. In that sense of knowing the truth of Christianity can become this thing of like, I've arrived and I know everything about God and I'll just stuff this knowledge into a bag and carry it around and hit people upside the head with it hoping that helps. Uh, a good friend of mine, Sean Slate, uh, is a pastor in Tennessee. He once said that when he was in seminary, he's, he's thinking on the enormity of this thing that he's, that he's working towards, getting his master's of divinity. Like, that's the degree you get when you go to seminary, master's of divinity. Uh, and one of his professors, he's talking about this with one of his professors, and one of his professors says to him, okay, what if absolute truth is a person? in whom you must trust and follow and love rather than a body of information that you can master and control. And, and Sean said that that's when he realized that the master of divinity is kind of a big fat joke. Um, because you're never going to master this thing called divinity in three to four years. Like learning is good. It is so good. We've got to go deep into the truth in, in learning. We've got to be lifelong learners. We've got to be lifelong students, yes, for the rest of our life. Uh, because, because knowing the truth about God is knowing, it's knowing a person. And you will spend the rest of your life and the rest of your eternal life getting to know the great light who is a person. The truth is not a place of arrival. The truth is a person who we will come to know more and more forever. Now, here's the scary thing. is knowing, The more you step into the light of knowing Jesus, the more you're going to be exposed. Because the darkness is not just out there. It's also in here. And it's in here. It's in us. And so let's admit it. Christians are not the light of truth in and of ourselves because Christians lie. Uh, we, can, we can outright distort narratives and continue to do so to the point where we convince ourselves of a different narrative. We can lie. Uh, we also slander other people, and not just unbelievers, we slander our Christian brothers and sisters. And usually we do it from hearsay and speculation and impressions. We we're also really good at using flattery. Uh, flattery, different from encouragement, in that sense of we flatter people as a, way, as a way of manipulating them. Like, let me do that flattery sandwich. I'll praise you and puff you up, and then I'll say something critical, and then I'll circle back to flattery, all to get you to respond to me in a certain way. We, we gossip. Uh, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson uh, was once asked, 
what is the biggest problem in the church? What the, what's the biggest problem in the church? Like, what sin undoes churches more than any other? And he said, this is easy. Gossip. We also give each other the silent treatment. Uh, silence out of anger and hate. Silence is punishment. Uh, we give each other the silent treatment out of fear. That, that, this thing of we neglect telling each other the truth because that would necessarily take the form of calling someone to repentance, and that's just awkward. And, and they're going to get mad at me, and they're going to turn it on me as I'm attacking them. And the truth is none of that untruth is loving. And when you come into the light of Jesus, he's going to expose it. But when Jesus exposes it, it's not to embarrass us as if to say, ah, see, knew it. And now everyone else knows it. Gotcha. And for shame. That's, like, that's, no, that's, not why, that's not why we come to the light. That's not what Jesus does when he exposes us. He does not expose us to shame us, but to say, okay, now, now the truth that you need a Savior, it's not an abstraction. I'm not setting you up to shame you. I'm setting you up to heal you and to make you a light. What the church is called to is speaking the light of truth. And we're supposed to do it in love. Like tone, manner, timing, they're all important. How we speak the truth in love. As in like, you've got to, you, yes, you need to use the truth in the right words correct you know the correct words but but you've also got to speak that truth in love in that it is really with love it's not just judgment it's not just this thing of you're wrong it's and there's hope and you are loved and there's forgiveness and i'm no better than you we have to speak this truth in love even if the response is wow that really wounded me what you just said well, Proverbs 27 says, an enemy multiplies kisses. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And, and when we come with the light of truth, we've got to remember, we, we don't have that light in and of ourselves. Jesus does. He's the sun, we're the moon. You remember that from last time. Like, we don't have light in and of ourselves. We are supposed to reflect the truth of the light of God that shines on us. And yes, it shines in us when he indwells us to shine out into the world. But you've got to stay connected to that light. One of the many Psalms by King David is Psalm 15. Uh, it, super short, asks a really simple question. It says this, uh, David's just asking, like he's looking at the temple and he's like, who gets to live with God? He says, O Lord, who shall... This is the confession. I told you we would come back. Here's the confession of faith we had. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And David knows the... It's a rhetorical question. He knows the, he knows the answer to the question, so he answers it, and he says, I know it's he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, who swears even to his own hurt and does not change. That thing of like swearing to his own hurt is this thing of meaning this one tells the truth even if it hurts. As in, I'm going to tell you the truth even if it hurts me, even if it costs me. I'm going to tell you the truth because I love you. 
and I won't change. That's who gets to dwell with God, which begs the question, well, (laughs) okay, none of us do that. So how can we dwell in the light of God's presence? Because there was one who came and walked blamelessly. It's just like, just like Isaiah 4's prophecy is about Jesus, so is Psalm 15. Because there was one who came and walked blamelessly and did what was right and spoke truth in his heart, who did not slander with his tongue and who did no evil to his neighbor, nor took up a reproach against his friend, who swore to his own hurt, and he didn't change, and he still doesn't change. And for that... This one, this light, this Jesus, who gets to dwell in the temple, on the temple mount with God? It's this one. But this one is taken, for speaking that truth, he's taken from the temple mount in Jerusalem, and he's taken to another hill outside of Jerusalem, and there he is crucified for it. And as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out knowing the answer. He knows the answer. He cries out, swearing to the truth, even to his own hurt. To witness to the truth that he was forsaken to atone for all the darkness that we spread in the world with our lying, that we spread in the world with our gossip and our slander and our silence and our ignorance and our indifference. So that people who lie, who gossip, who slander, who are silent who are indifferent and who are ignorant can live with God forever. Think about this. The only way for Jesus' enemies to secure the death penalty and get Jesus on that cross was to raise up false witnesses against him. Jesus died for people like that. When Jesus is on trial for his life, Pilate asks him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. That's when you you, you stop and you're like, Oh, wait. Like, here it is. (laughs) For for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And it costs Jesus everything. Everything. Jesus is the light who has come into the world to tell the truth about God and the truth about himself and the truth about you and the truth about each other. The bad news about us and the good news for us. He is the light. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you. We thank you for the truth of the light our risen Lord and Savior. We thank you for sending him for us. We thank you that you've not abandoned us. Thank you that you're coming again. And and as we wait here, and this is a dark world, and there is darkness yet in us, we know that we have the light. And we know that the light will finally and fully overcome all darkness, all untruth. Father, help us to hold on to the truth. And not just alone, but together help us to show the light of that truth to one another and to the world who is in darkness, who needs the light of the gospel. We pray that you would bless us to that wonderful end of knowing your son and making him known.
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.